Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Welcome to the Danny Klinkscale Reasonably Irreverent Podcast. Insightful and witty commentary, probing interviews, and detours from the beaten path. Welcome to Kansas City Profiles, presented by Easton Roofing, and a fascinating conversation with Danny Kane, the owner of the Raven Bookstore in Lawrence. He has packed so much into around four decades on this planet, not even, that it is truly remarkable. Uh, Born in Cleveland, or thereabouts, uh, he always was an avid reader and had an interest in perhaps going into the book business eventually, but uh, he went to college to learn how to be a teacher, to learn how to be a writer. He's got a couple of degrees, and eventually his path led to Lawrence, Kansas, where he immediately developed an interest in the Raven Bookstore, went to work there, and eventually, in 2017, bought the business. He is a published poet. He is a published author now with his new book, Seven Ways to Resist Amazon. He is a ardent champion of small business and small bookstores and the resistance of gigantic corporations like Amazon, and he has put that to paper now. And it's got tremendous attention across the country, not just on this wonderful podcast, for all of his efforts. And fairly recently as well, the Raven Bookstore moved from just off of Massachusetts to a spot on the 800 block of Massachusetts. It's a beautiful space, a beautiful bookstore. It is an iconic part of the Lawrence, Kansas culture. We take a journey, a literary journey, a bookish journey, a tremendous journey with Danny Kane, the owner of the Raven Bookstore in Lawrence, Kansas. And it comes your way next on Kansas City Profiles, presented by Easton Roofing. More of Danny's Reasonably Irreverent podcast after this. Hey everybody, Joe Spiker, owner of Easton Roofing here. For almost 10 years, we've been a locally owned and operated family business. At Easton, we work on every job with one thing in mind, integrity matters. I grew up in central Kansas, was raised on the values of respecting hard work. We run our company every day on that value set. At Easton, we always make decisions based on the ethical, right thing for the customer. That's what integrity means to us. So if you have any questions about your roof, give me and my team a call. 913-257-5426. Easton Roofing. Integrity matters. Cinematic Visions has been an affordable solution for professional media production in Kansas City since 2003, offering award-winning video production and creation, as well as a wide array of digital and social media management services. From planning, scripting, filming, editing, and post-production to delivering your product to a watching world, Cinematic Visions will provide professional and affordable services for you and your business with the necessary return on investment to make it all worthwhile. Cinematic Vision's goal is to unlock the power of storytelling through video and a strong online presence for your company. Beyond the numbers, they want to inspire and evoke your clients to feel and act. Let my friends at Cinematic Visions embed your brand where it belongs, in your customers' minds. You can find them online at cinematicvisions.com or with a quick phone call at 816-600-6300. It's time to tell you about a great opportunity to improve your retirement outlook by using the outstanding services of 401k USA. 
What the experts at 401k USA bring to you is an overlay of your current 401k plan that manages it in a far more proactive and responsive way. Too many retirement plans can be restrictive, but 401k USA brings far more flexibility to your plan to capitalize on opportunities and avoid downturns. It's simple and easy to find out much more about all the details on taking a close look at what the friendly experts at 401k USA can do for you. You can create more retirement wealth and a richer lifestyle by visiting 401kusa.org today or by texting to 816-844-6236. That's 401kusa.org or text to 816-844-6236 to find out much more. Time to spend a few minutes with my good friend Jeff Dillon from Dillon's Heating and Cooling. And Jeff, what differentiates your company from others in the industry? Plain and simple, we're honest. We have integrity and we're going to do things right the first time. There's way too many companies out there that lie, cheat, hide things from the homeowner or customer. And we're not about that. It's kind of funny sometimes. I actually am so honest with some people, it kind of surprises them. But sometimes it's good for business, sometimes it's bad for business. But ultimately, it's the kind of business that I want to run is an honest one. And that family way of treating things is part of your slogan. And it's also part of one of your great features that you offer to customers. Our slogan is like family. Our most popular maintenance plan is called the family plan. It's very similar to a lot of ones out there. The little tweak that we do to ours, 1% off for every two years, they have a continued maintenance plan with us. If they have a maintenance plan for 10 years and we give them 5% off, no questions asked. You can find out more about Dylan's Heating and Cooling and all their great range of services at dylansheatingandcooling.com. That's Dylan's with an S. The phone number, 913-214-1343. If you'd like to join these and other great sponsors and market your business to a growing and engaged audience, contact us at danny at dannyclinkscale.com. Look forward to hearing from you. Welcome back, and it's a pleasure to talk to Danny Kane. It's been a tremendously busy time for him, and I'm glad he's taken the time out to do this particular podcast. It's certainly not the only thing he's done. He's done articles and everything from the New Yorker and far-flung things, but let's learn more about Danny Kane himself first uh, before we get into some of the issues of the day and uh, some of the philosophies that he has taken to uh, I think reflect maybe where the bookstore is and and all kinds of other good stuff as well and you are a Clevelander as it says on your bio page Uh, tell me about growing up in Ohio sure yeah well I was uh, born in Cleveland and spent most of my childhood in Solon which is kind of an outer suburb of uh, Cleveland Ohio um, yeah long winters bad football I remember when the Browns left I remember when the Browns came back uh, and now finally after many 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 long years it seems to be something exciting going on with that franchise uh, so yeah I the in terms of its relevance to where I am now, I fell in love with reading and writing in Cleveland. Uh, the first bookstore I fell in love with was in Northeast Ohio. It's called Books in Stock in Worcester, Ohio, where I went to school. Now we're outside of Cleveland. Uh, and then I, I really fell in love with a lot of small businesses in Cleveland after graduating from college and becoming uh kind of an economic citizen of the place, I understood the importance of small businesses and what they can contribute to the community. So I was falling in love with restaurants and record stores and really kind of seeing Cleveland again through the eyes of someone who makes a point to patronize small businesses. Uh, and so that's kind of the, 
the Ohio stuff that was brewing as I as I came to Kansas and begun this part of my path. When you were growing up, what was your interest in reading and writing and maybe doing a little poetry or how did you develop? What were you what were you like as a kid? I was bookish for sure. I would I I could uh, hardly ever stop reading. Um, the staying up late and uh, taking a book everywhere I went uh, started with. Um, I mean, I think the first books. Well, I started reading really early on, uh, and I went through all kinds of phases. Um, when I was a kid, I was really into fire engines, and I had memorized where the fire truck books for kids were in the public library, and had read all of them, and just kind of rotated through them. But then I went through the adventure fiction of Will Hobbs and Gary Paulson, who just recently passed away and went through a big science fiction phase uh, when I was in middle school. And as I came into high school, I really, really fell in love. In 10th grade, I fell in love with just uh, um, with literature. Uh, Shakespeare and Charles Dickens were actually the first two, weirdly, in 10th grade. A Tale of Two Cities and Julius Caesar, we read back to back when I was in 10th grade. And uh, it really opened my eyes to what literature could do and how it could impact me. Uh, and I had Mr. Kramer at Solon High School, my 10th grade English teacher, really set off the spark for me. And I had an aunt, my aunt Pat, my dad's sister, um, when she lived in Chicago, but she came into town all the time and uh, she would take me to Borders and I could, there was no budget limit at Borders. I could leave with an armful of books if Aunt Pat took me to Borders. Uh, and, you know, that was formative for me. Uh, she really kind of encouraged me to become a reader. Uh, and I think that still is sticking with me today. Besides reading as a teenage guy, what did you like to do? I was in marching band. Uh, so it was, I was really, I played trumpet and I loved playing in marching band. And in Cleveland, uh, when football, we had a good football team too. Solon went to the state championship my, my senior or my freshman year regularly uh, in the playoffs. So that would stretch football season into November and December even. And so like my trumpet would freeze shut. It was, it was kind of an extreme sport being in marching band in, <laughs> in Ohio. Uh, but I loved it. I love the community. I love the atmosphere of a Friday night football game. Um, and I've lifelong friends I made in, in marching band. I was also a backpacker. I was really into outdoor stuff. I ended up when I was in college, I worked as a backpacking guide uh, in the mountains over the summers. Um, so between the reading and the hiking and the marching band, there wasn't much time left for anything else. That sounds like a really kind of cool uh, way to uh, spend your time and, and develop things as you uh, get set to uh, go on into the real world, as it were. What was, uh, what was it like choosing a college? What was your decision-making there? And what, at that point in time, were you thinking you might want to do? I had always wanted to be a teacher and I ended up, I did do that for a while. Um, but, uh, I don't know. I was kind of aimless. A lot of my career decisions, um, <laughs> I don't know. I wasn't particularly ambitious as I finished high school. Um, and I visited the school where my parents went. I visited the school, which is John Carroll in Cleveland. Mm -hmm. I visited Miami university of Ohio, which is where aunt Pat went. Um, and I was just, I wasn't sure exactly what I wanted, um, but then I, as soon as I got out of the car on our visit to College of Worcester in, in Worcester, Ohio, I was like, this place feels like it. It was totally a gut decision um, based entirely on feel. Um, it was the right decision. 
has a wonderful English department and a good education school. So I did basically a double major in education and English. Uh, and I worked with a poet, Dan Bourne, um, for my, my big project. I was writing nonfiction. I was kind of writing travel essays for my capstone project, but I was working on poetry on the side thanks to Dan Bourne's influence. And it was just a really great atmosphere, a really good English department. Um, and that kind of steered me on the path towards uh, creative writing there. But like you think about a small Midwestern college with the, the big trees that turn yellow and the stone buildings and the, the quiet, shady quads. It was so picturesque. It was exactly what you would think of with the small Midwestern college. It was such a great place to be. I was so happy there. Uh, and I think that happiness and that comfort led me to really develop as a writer. Um, and, and also that bookstore downtown um, where I could just wander through the stacks for hours at a time, uh, strengthened the love of books that I already had and, you know, gave me the idea that I might want to write books and possibly sell them someday. It all goes back back to Worcester. You know, that it, it's interesting. You said that that happiness uh, fueled your, your creative writing. And a lot of times we think of... Uh, you know, writers as kind of tortured souls a little bit, and, and that's where that's where the muse comes for them. But uh, sort of the opposite for you, it sounds like. Well, yeah, I mean, it was the I think inspiration. You know, there is something to that, and I think writing is a way to work through complicated uh, feelings and situations, and you can write your way to answering big questions. Um, but it there was something about the, just the culture of the English department and the idea of how people interacted with books and created them. Um, it made it seem cool. I was surrounded by other people who also loved books. The teachers were really supportive. Uh, there was just something about it that, that made me fall in love with it even more. Um, so it was, I went into college wanting to be a teacher. And I came out wanting to be a teacher and a writer. That's very interesting. And what kind of, uh, as you uh, were developing, and you said you did teach for a while, uh, what kind of things did you like to read and write at that point in your life? Uh, well, so, yeah, I, I got a job at a rural high school teaching 10th grade English um, right out of college. And I was I was very young. Um, the... I, I have a beard. I've had a beard for a long time, but the reason I grew the beard was to, I looked less like a high school student and more like a high school teacher when I was 22 years old uh, teaching at, at this school. Um, the job was hard. It was grueling. Um, it was incredibly stressful uh, and it, frankly not a great fit for me. I lasted three years, but I didn't do much reading or writing as a teacher, and that was part of why the job wasn't a great fit for me because I would come home so drained and exhausted. I couldn't do anything, but, you know, watch TV, go for a walk. Uh, and, um, you know, the, the writing and reading had become such a part of my life. If my job was, was taking up all that space and not letting me read or write, uh, I, I needed to look for something else. Um, so, but I, you know, for a very long time, I've been really into the fiction. I love a well-crafted novel. Um, and, and poetry, those are my two kind of tried and true genres that I return to again and again. What is it like to start writing poetry? Um, people can you know, think of it as a, a difficult enterprise, and there's, very, there's a whole, all kinds of different ways to do it and be inspired to do it. 
what do you think your inspiration was to go in that direction sometimes? And you've obviously been a published poet. Uh, as, as far as uh, some people who write fiction and things like that and never even go near poetry. Well, part of the, the, what I love about poetry is its capacity to surprise. Uh, and that includes the poet uh, themselves. And so I took an introduction to creative writing class when I was in college. And um, it was, in, it was a, a multi-genre class. So we were required to write um, fiction and poetry. And so I had to. And then I did. And it surprised me um, how it felt, uh, how it, it came pretty easily to me. Um, and how it seemed to get across what I was doing. So kind of being forced into writing that poem and surprised at, at how good it felt um, kind of set me down that path. And that's one of the really fun parts of poetry still to this day is that somehow through the magic of poetry, um, I can be writing a poem and really surprise myself. That's very interesting. So you're in your 20s, you're your teacher, uh, you, you see that it's eating up a lot of your time and you want to be a writer. Where does the next step go? Well, grad school. <laughs> That's where you go when you can't figure out what else to do. <laughs> and that was really what it was. Uh, so I moved back up to Cleveland uh, and ended up actually going to John Carroll, where my, both my parents went and met. Um, and there uh, it was a master's degree in English, just an MA in English, which is uh, in, in the grad school world, if you want to really have a serious academic career, you need an MFA or a PhD. So an MA was kind of a first step. But I got a, I got a, um, a teaching assistantship. So I, I taught two classes, a freshman comp every semester, and they paid for, I got a small stipend and I didn't have to pay tuition. So it was, you know, I was a little aimless, but at least I wasn't going into debt. But once I got there, I fell in with this poet, Phil Metris, um, who really kind of sharpened me and refocused me and sent me on the path towards being a professional and published poet that I'm on now. Um, and he was just an amazing poet, an amazing teacher, and, and helped me get serious about my poetry career. And a, a large chunk of my first book I wrote uh, at John Carroll under his tutelage. Um, and then in, in discussions with Phil, he was like, do you want to be a professor? Do you want to be a writer? And we ended up uh, kind of charting my path towards what I wanted to do. And that's what brought me to Kansas because Phil encouraged me to apply to MFA programs um, if I wanted to, to give this poetry thing a try. And then uh, University of Kansas had a great offer for me. And so it was off to Lawrence. And what time frame were we talking about when you came to Lawrence? 2014. Um, and it was a three-year pro. So I was, at, I was at KU doing a poetry MFA from 2014 to 2017. And when you are going to school, is there any, you know, traction towards you doing what you eventually do now? Yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, I got as soon as I got the one of the first places that my wife and I, when we moved to Lawrence, um, came here over a weekend and uh, made a point of, of visiting downtown and shopping at small businesses and trying the restaurants and bars. And we went to the Raven that first weekend and I fell in love with the place. Um, the... I, I walked up those steps and opened that creaky old door and there were two women holding a cat that was just mm -hmm. screaming and they were trying to trim this cat's nails. Uh, and it was such a funny tableau to, to see the first time I entered this business. And I was like, this place is weird. I think I'm going to like it. 
And so as soon as I got to Lawrence and started my grad program, I tried to get a job at the Raven. But at that point, the Raven had a very small staff with very low turnover because it's a great job and people love working there. So it took months and months and months to convince them to hire me. Uh, so I got here in August of 2014 and started working at the Raven at March 2015. Uh, and so basically those seven or eight months were me just constantly uh, <laughs> ingratiating myself at the Raven and trying to become a known enough quantity that they would hire me as a part-time bookseller. And then as soon as that started, I just fell in love with the place even more um, with the book business and, and independent bookselling in general. Uh, and it, it became something I really thought seriously about doing for the rest of my life. It certainly is something that has a bit of a Don Quixote quality about it. <laughs> I mean, I mean, it's not easy. And, uh, you know, to, first of all, to, you, you said you meant, uh, moved here with your wife. Tell me how you met your wife and how you two got together. In marching bands, in college. <laughs> so we met at band camp right before freshman year of, of college. Um, we just had a, a mutual friend. We had both befriended the same person and that person kind of gathered all of her friends from band camp up to eat lunch one day. Um, we, we both had other partners at the time. We were still with our high school sweethearts, but by the end of that first semester, we were together. Um, and yeah, so we, we dated for a long time before we got married. Uh, but we got married basically right when I moved back to Cleveland to go to John Carroll. There's another reason I moved back to Cleveland. Uh, is to be with her. Um, and so, yeah, it was a little bit of a miracle that we both got good offers from KU. I mean, we were both applying to grad school at the same time. And when you have a couple's grad school search, um, it could end up, right. you know, anywhere. Um, you might not get offers in the same city. One person might get an offer, but they have to pay for it. And one person gets an assistantship. So the fact that we both got assistantships at KU um that alone was really strong argument pro moving to Lawrence. Uh, but then we also uh, really saw it as a place we could be happy living. And so you, you come here, you spend those three years doing that. And now we're getting closer to, <laughs> to where we are, are today. <laughs> yeah, we're drawing closer to the present day. Right. Yeah. right. So uh, tell me about, uh, first of all, tell me about the, the journey towards uh, being a published poet. Being a published poet, yeah. So, I mean, as soon as I got serious about it um, with Phil Metris at John Carroll, you start sending out um, poems to magazines. And the first couple times um, I was mailing poems to magazines and waiting for rejection slips to arrive back in the mail. And the, actually the first poem I published um, was probably towards the end of 2012 or early 2013 uh, was, was mailed. I got my acceptance letter in the mail. Uh, since then, I've been doing all of this online, unfortunately, saving a lot of money on stamps. But um, yeah, you just you, you, you throw it all out there and see what sticks and you start to build a track record of, of poems that get published in magazines. And once a bunch of poems get published in magazines, you put them together into a manuscript and try to publish it as a book. And so um, once I was done, my, my project at KU for my MFA was to was to do that was to turn my pile of poems into a coherent book, into a manuscript. Uh, and then I started this, once I finished my MFA, I started to shop around for small presses. Um, I sent out my manuscript to, I think maybe eight or nine places and Mason Jar Press out of Baltimore um, said they were interested in publishing it. So I agreed to it. I think they did a great job putting it together. I'm really good friends with them now. 
Uh, and, you know, once your first book is published, the second one comes a lot easier because uh, you're starting to make connections and, and build a name. So it's like the theme of all of this is just like, you know, it might take some time. You just keep trying. More of Danny's Reasonably Irreverent podcast after this. Joe Spiker, owner of Easton Roofing here. Well, it stormed. The last thing you want to mess with is dealing with it. But now you're stuck with dozens of people knocking on your door, telling you everything they think you want to hear. Do not trust your biggest asset to a company that lies dormant until it storms, only to change their name and wither away after their substandard work is complete. Call Easton Roofing for a free roof evaluation. 913-257-5426. 913-257-5426. Easton Roofing. Integrity matters. It's time for another timely chat with Dr. Brad Woodle from Advanced Sports and Family Chiropractic and Acupuncture. Many locations around Kansas City. We're headed to the fall. It's time for the youngsters to get active, but the parents are always active too. That's right, Danny. It is fall sports time. So no matter what sport is yours, we know that you want to play it at your best. And our job is to make sure you are feeling great, functioning great, but also performing optimally now and keeping you in the game. And you do that in a variety of ways here. We check out biomechanics, make sure everything is moving through chiropractic and our physiotherapies. And we also do some school physicals. Absolutely. And of course, you have chiropractic, you have acupuncture, you have a full range of services. As the name of our company is Advanced Sports and Family Chiropractic and Acupuncture, we can take care of about anything that deals with any of those items. Advanced Sports and Family Chiropractic and Acupuncture. Learn more at asfca.com slash Danny. Hey, everyone. This is Matt Llewellyn for the 23rd Street Brewery. Thank you so much for supporting local restaurants, especially through this pandemic. And you know what? We're almost through it. At the 23rd Street Brewery, we've brought in a few more tables. You can wear a mask if you want or not. It's your choice. Other than that, we're open 1130 every single day. So come see us at the 23rd Street Brewery in Lawrence. Most of us have experienced auto accidents, and it's no fun. And even less fun is trying to work on the insurance aspects afterwards and getting full value after an auto accident. I'm here with David Cowan from RecExpert.com. And David, you have an unusual and important niche for people after an auto accident. We have a passion to teach car wreck clients what they deserve. Getting your car repaired only fixes the damage and the paint. Getting paid for your car's loss in value is called diminished value. Chances are you've never heard of this before because most people aren't looking out for you. We help people collect thousands to tens of thousands of dollars for their car's loss in value after the wreck. And if somebody wants to come to you for that, what's the original assessment cost them? We offer a free review of any insurance claim to see how we can help. You can't beat that. Great expertise and assistance in getting full value after an auto accident. From David Cowan, visit RecExpert.com and learn more. If you'd like to join these and other great sponsors and market your business to a growing and engaged audience, contact us at Danny at DannyClinkscale.com. Look forward to hearing from you. Our guest is uh, Danny Kane. He obviously operates uh, the Raven, which now is in a different location. We'll talk about that than the one he walked up the steps to. And I've walked up those steps uh, dozens, hundreds of times uh, myself, as a matter of fact. Uh, and uh, what is the process of you going from working at a store to thinking about making it a business? Yeah, well, it, as I finished the MFA at, at KU, um, it was the the question of my career to that point through 
the high school days, the teaching high school and both master's degrees was do I want to keep teaching? And by the time I got to the end of teaching at KU, I had really decided that I needed to find something else to do. Um, I had given teaching a try for basically seven years and it, it just, it never felt right. Uh, it never got easier for me. So I was looking around, I was curious. I was thinking about what else I could do. I was, I did an internship at a nonprofit. I was learning graphic design. I was just trying to do all this stuff. And then uh, my boss at the Raven, Heidi, um, started talking about retiring and, and moving on. And um, at first jokingly, and then I think increasingly a little bit more serious. And I just told her, I was like, look, if you ever want to sell the store, I would like to be the first person to talk to you talk to. Um, I think I might want to make a go at book selling. This is a great business. Um, we might be able to work it out. Um, and then pretty quickly, she got convinced that I was the right person. And we, you know, then it took a, a while to negotiate and figure out the details of it. But I graduated from KU in May 2017 and bought the store in August of 2017 and kind of spent the summer getting ready for that. Uh, and, and she did it in a way I'm ever grateful to her because she structured the deal in a way that made it financially even possible um, for me. So it's, it's a seller finance deal. Uh, we didn't involve a bank at all. Heidi basically loaned me the money to buy the store directly, and I'm making payments back directly to her. And that enabled us to set things up in a flexible way that allowed you know a, a poet and former grad student to buy a bookstore. So but tell me. she did it. I think it was just it, a lot of good faith on her right. part because she knew the store was staying in good hands, familiar hands. So tell me about the, you know, the first few months when you're the man. Is it overwhelming? Is it scary? Is it uh, sleepless nights? Or was it a little bit more seamless because of the way it went? A little bit of both. Uh, I, I, had, I had no preparation to be an entrepreneur, and there was a big learning curve on a lot of stuff. Fortunately... I have a very patient lawyer and accountant, um, both of whom have helped me immensely uh, and, and still are to this day. Um, but it's also one of the things that was irresistible to me about The Raven was that it had a 30-year head start in Lawrence. Um, the right. 30th anniversary was a month after I bought the store. Um, it has a built-in community. It was already profitable. It has a really strong brand. Um, and a lot of people were rooting for it. Uh, for longevity. And when a business sells, that's that's a good sign for that industry. I think it's really encouraging for independent bookstores in general that bookstores keep selling. It's good news. It means that younger people are interested in becoming bookstore owners. And hopefully that'll lead to some permanence among uh, the independent bookstores of America. So I think for, uh, almost entirely people were excited to see it uh, change hands, especially to uh, someone who was already a raven. And um, a lot of that goodwill um, and, and the 30-year head start helped me through whatever difficulty I had as a, as a first-time business owner. Was your wife all on board on this all along the process? Yeah, she was immensely supportive. That's and it was, great. it's a really complicated thing because it's, this was never, we never thought of Lawrence as a place we'd stay forever. Uh, and so it was a big change in the plan. But um, she saw how much it meant to me. Um, and you know, we've, we, we communicate well, uh, and, and she's really supportive of it, um, still. Uh, so, and, and I wouldn't have done it without her support because I mean, it obviously meant a big thing for our family. It's a really kind of, it's a permanent thing to buy a business. 
It is, absolutely. Do you feel like the, the culture of Lawrence in a university town, but Lawrence is, has its own uniquenesses, too, and people who stay and uh, things like that, and, and a downtown that has always uh, thrived. And, you know, back in the day, the, uh, they hardly ever let any chain businesses onto Massachusetts Street. Even borders had to be off the street when it first came aboard, you know, and I lived in Lawrence. I went to school at KU, obviously, but not obviously to obviously to my listeners, but uh, and lived there in, in the late 90s and early 2000s and, and, you know, go there all the time. My daughters live there, too. Uh, but the culture of the city, the way the the feel of the city, is that uh, does that make it more conducive to independent businesses and bookstores? Absolutely, I think Lawrence is a uniquely wonderful place to operate a small business uh, because it's it is so the there are so many people here who get it. Uh, I, I I'm not sure everybody. Uh, it feels obvious to us here in Lawrence, but the fact that we've got three or four full blocks, almost completely driven by small business with a strong retail presence and, and, and a policy and customers that are generally favorable to small businesses is really, really special. Um, and like, for example, in Cleveland, um, independent retail has a much harder go of it than, than here in Lawrence. And you don't see a concentration uh, like on the, here on the 800 block of, of mass you've right. got um you've got the striped cow wonder fair um love garden the raven game nut the third planet like six or seven thriving retail small businesses in a single block and they're surrounded by restaurants weavers the departments an independent right. department store is right there uh that's really special and that takes a lot of community buy-in to to make that possible um so yes i think being in lawrence really does uh contribute a lot um, to the Raven success. And you mentioned borders in the nineties. And I think that's where a lot of this came from. A lot of my advocacy today, I think I owe to the Raven's original owners and how they framed, uh, what happened with borders opening right across the street, how they managed to survive and educate their customers about why they should shop at the Raven as opposed to the mega store across the street. Uh, they did some really important work for that, that, that put down some serious roots. Uh, and it inspires me to this day. Well, let's get to the tough part of it. Uh, you start a business, it's successful, it's an up and operating enterprise, you're taking the step forward, and then we get the pandemic, and that's a killer for so many businesses. I had just started a small business, this business at the time when the pandemic came around. Obviously, we have a monolith in, in uh, your industry, uh, well, in all industries, but uh, it started in your industry in Amazon. Uh, mm -hmm. Talk about the, the, the first, you know, when, when it, of course, we never, people did not think this was going to be a, a, you know, now almost two-year deal when it started, but when it did, what were your thoughts? Well, my thoughts were we were going to have to adapt quick. And so I had, when it became clear to us in mid-March of 2020 that we were going to have to shut down uh, the in-person Raven experience, um, you know, it was book selling is a high touch, really personal. Mm -hmm. um, people spend a long time in the Raven. The Raven is small. They're picking up books and touching them and putting them back. And that all felt really dangerous all of a sudden in mid-March. And so my goals for the whole thing were to do everything I possibly could to keep all my employees on board and to keep them safe. Um, and so that's kind of what animated me through the early days, actually the whole pandemic. So um, 
framing my decisions like that, it was like, okay, we probably need to shut down in-person browsing. Um, we need to pivot all of our business to online. We need to create a way to pick up books curbside. We need to pick up, create a way uh, to deliver books in town. And we need to get a lot better at shipping. And so we immediately got to work on, on all of that. And it took maybe three or four weeks to really settle into a routine and figure out exactly what we were doing. But at that point, um, you know, after a month or so, we got it and, and we, we figured it out. And then we could successfully pivot our business to a way that let us stick around and, and keep everybody on board. So um, that's, I think, in part to the talent of my team. They were really great and persistent and determined to figure it out. And it's also a credit to the Lawrence community. Um, and the Raven could say, we would like you to keep supporting us, but we need you to do it this way. And in large part, Lawrence said, okay, let's do it. And, you know, here we are stronger than ever in a beautiful new bookstore coming out of this um, just fine. And we didn't have to let anybody go. Uh, we didn't have to cut anybody's hours. Um, so it was hard. Um, and it was much harder for lots of other bookstores. For Like, we had a website already. We were already selling books online. But if a small business didn't have a website that they could sell through when the pandemic started, they had a, an uphill battle much more than we did. But um, that's not to say it was easy for us, but it, it affected everybody. It was really hard. I'm proud of the work my team did, and I'm thankful to the Lawrence community for the support. And through this process as well, and through this time, you, I don't know if it was just a you know, sort of an organic type of thing, but you've kind of not gone to war with, but at least tried to be somebody who wants great awareness of, you know, what the, you know, uh, you know processes that are not positive for Amazon trying to take over the world, as it were. And certainly they began in the book selling area. That's how they, they grew. Uh, but having a monolithic type thing like this when independent business is so important to you, uh, you've made that more than just a little crusade. Right. Yeah, well, I, you're right. I think of myself more as an educator than a warrior. Um, but uh, <laughs> right. that's, I mean, that's in part, like I said, it comes from Pat and Mary Lou, the Ravens' original owners, and how they talked about borders and how they figured out a way to survive through that. Uh, Amazon is a bigger threat, is a lot more dangerous, but a lot of the same issues are at play. Um, so it's it's still a fight, and it's still uh, something we feel the need to educate people about. So the this this whole thing with Lawrence and the small businesses and the way of life where you have a downtown that's thriving with good jobs and and local business owners. Um, if any company is out there trying to destroy that, it's Amazon. Um, and that way of life that's been so good for us for the last 30 years and so good for downtown Lawrence really is at threat if Amazon is allowed to do what uh, all, everything they want to do. Um, and so I'm not, I'm not going to be one to let it go quietly. Um, even if it's a doomed fight, I'm going to stick up for the, the way of life I believe in and the ability for small bookstores to thrive in the United States and uh, the ability for a person to make a career out of a small business if they have the right determination and the right idea. Uh, so, yeah, and it's, you know, it's a conversation that comes up naturally all the time when you're a, a bookseller. And people are like, well, I'm going to buy this online because it's 50% cheaper there. And you have, to have a you have to have a conversation ready for that person to try to convince them of the value of your store 
and the importance of investing in your community. And so I just uh, tried to figure out a way to have that conversation a little bit more broadly with the tweets and the, the zine and now the book. Um, and it's been real humbling and thrilling to watch that conversation spread. Tell, tell me about how developing the idea to publish your book, which has been very successful and has got an incredible amount of in attention. And, you know, I've, I've written one book, so I know what, what it's like. But, <laughs> but uh, uh, what, what was that like? And, and how, what were some of the, you know, what's some of the blowback you get from powerful entities? Yeah. Um, so we st like this conversation. Uh, the this this conversation about small businesses and Amazon and the importance of communities, um, it was a really it's a it, for many many years it's been an active and vibrant conversation among independent booksellers and every time we go to a conference we have these great conversations about the importance of bookstores and why Amazon is dangerous but I wasn't having it that much with customers and so taking inspiration from the ravens original owners i was looking for ways to kind of make the conversation cross the the sales counter um one one tool i have that the original raven owners didn't is social media uh so we made it a part of our social media strategy to do some education about these issues uh, some of those tweets took off um, and a friend of mine suggested making a pamphlet or a zine uh out of just our collected uh, pro small business advocacy. So I did in October 2019. It was called How to Resist Amazon and Why. We self-published it um, and and offered it to at just like super cheap wholesale prices to bookstores across the country. And demand was really crazy right away. I uh, I think in the first week of making zines, I made 1,500 and mailed it. It took up all of my time. And so this this publisher, Microcosm Press, out of Portland, who themselves are very vocally anti-Amazon. Um, offered to help me publish and distribute the zine. Um, and that's great. I knew they were good guys. I knew they were on our team. And then it did so well for them that they just offered me a chance to expand it into a book, which was great for me because I really wanted to make a strong argument and talk about it at a lot, talk about it in a way that wasn't really possible in the shortness of the zine. Um, so I spent about a year writing that. It came out in March. Um, and, and like you said, the response has been great. We haven't had that much blowback at all. Um, in, in part because I think it's a really easy case. And this is a rare issue, this this idea of, of reining in big tech and protecting small businesses is a rare bipartisan issue um, on, on, on Capitol Hill. And a lot of people agree that small businesses are important and a lot of people agree that, um, that, that big tech is, is scary and these companies are getting too big. So um, fortunately, almost all of the response has been hugely positive, uh, which tells me that this is an issue that resonates with a lot of people. You know, I've seen so many, I'm a, I'm a big fan of small towns and I wrote a book about driving through small towns and my wife and I have taken subsequent trips. You know, I don't know if I'd ever want to live in a really tiny town, but I love visiting them. And, and I can't say how many of them, you know, have been in a downtown area, just absolutely killed by the Walmart that was built out by the highway. And, and it's certainly, you know, but places like, I think just the fact that all people have to do is go to places like Lawrence or, you know, Manhattan has kind of improved in that way or any place like that where they, there's a thriving downtown to see the importance and, and the joy of having, uh, you know, all storefronts filled and not, you know, filled with McDonald's and things like that or nothing. I mean, it, it's really an amazing 
American phenomenon that is so nice. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, and that's community. It's I think there are two cases to make for that. One is economic, um, and it's like your your economy is healthier if you have local jobs and local the businesses that are owned locally. A lot more of that money is staying um, locally. You're not sending it off to Seattle or wherever else or Silicon Valley. Um, you know that money it goes a lot farther if it stays in town, but it's also the, the community just in terms of morale mm -hmm. and, and community spirit and people supporting each other. That stuff is a lot easier when there are gathering places, when you have a vibrant place for people to come and engage in, in commerce. Yes. But also the arts and, and socializing and just the, the magic of, of an evening stroll under the Christmas lights on main street. Um, it, it does a lot for, for the community spirit and community health if if you've got a district that's that's full of thriving small businesses. Yeah, there's no question about that. So what do you think uh, the future holds? Uh, you, you said Amazon is a big threat. It's difficult. And in your book, you point out seven ways to resist Amazon. And, you know, that's a very simple way of looking at it. Obviously, the book is more full-fleshed out than that. But uh, what is the fight? And what's the best way to fight it, do you think? Yeah, well, it's, it's a good question. And and people always uh, tell me that they're canceling their Prime accounts, which is, I mean, I celebrate that. Uh, I, I don't have a Prime account. I don't shop on Amazon, but I don't think that's the solution. The solution is really a government solution um, because government policy and the interpretation of it has permitted Amazon to get this big. And really, it's a question of how do we look at antitrust laws? The laws are already on the books, but the, the interpretation for the last 40 years has basically been if a company is lowering prices, they can do whatever they want and they can get as big as they want. And I think that is a dangerous interpretation for jobs, for communities, for a lot of things other than price that are also measures of economic health. I think fortunately there's, there is some momentum. Um, the, the newly appointed chair of the FTC, Lena Khan, um, is a really prominent anti-Amazon scholar and has a lot of um, bona fides when it comes to uh, a new way of thinking about antitrust. There are a couple bipartisan laws uh, that were that were passed in the passed out of committee in the House that would directly address a lot of the issues with big tech. Um, and uh, yeah, I mean, people are buying the book. People are talking about it. Uh, it's becoming a conversation more and more. And I think awareness is growing. So I do have some hope for the future. Oh, and, and one more thing is that the, in, in my industry, um, Two of the big five publishers are trying to merge. Penguin Random House is trying to, to buy Simon & Schuster, which would lead to a, just an absolutely gigantic publishing company. Um, and the Justice Department has sued to stop the deal. And it's the first time a merger like this has been blocked by the Justice Department, which I think is an indication that the government is thinking about how big it wants to let companies get. These are all positive steps. Um, you never know with Washington. <laughs> Right. Uh, it's a pretty unhealthy place right now, but I think there are some positive signs that, that some stuff might get done about this. But what you should do is let your representative know that this is important to you. Uh, so give your rep a call, Democrat, Republican, it doesn't matter. Let them know you're concerned about Amazon, you're concerned about protecting small businesses, um, and they should support the legislation that's already been introduced uh, to make sure that happens. Well, let's talk a little bit to conclude, and I could talk to you for hours about this subject, but uh, even a podcast has to come to an end. Uh, 
What was it like to you know, uh, have your baby, the Raven Bookstore, move to a different place and a different location? And, and what was that whole process like? Like it's a lovely new location and, uh, you know, it's not big either. But uh, what was the whole process like and the decision making uh, aspect of it to, to uh, make that really, really cool move? Well, thanks. Um, I, thank you for the kind words. Uh, it was it was a long process. It was it was really hard, um, uh, and we worked really really hard on it. It was over budget, and way past deadline, but ultimately worth it, um, of course. So we signed a letter of intent on 809 Mass in August 2020. Um, at the time, it was just a shell of the building. The 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 previous occupants had an accidental fire here and, and decided not to reopen. And so it was in an amazing leap of faith. All of the Raven booksellers were standing in here and decided there was some sort of magic in the vibes and that it would make a good home for us. And so it was a long process of um, of, of design and inspiration and, and work and, and setbacks. Um, I did not know that you know, lumber would be historically expensive over the past year, right. which is a little complicated when you're building bookshelves out of wood, but we figured it out. But like at every step of the way, um, we kind of refused to compromise on the look of it. And we were like, if we make this space as beautiful as we possibly can, um, people will love it. And we will be able to keep the spirit of the Raven alive, even though it's in a different place. And and I think that paid off. And uh, we're a lot busier here on mass. We've got a lot of people, the, like a football Saturday, um, people from out of town are coming in. We keep hearing, um, people so excited for how beautiful it is. And it gives us a chance to do our work better and, um, for it to be more comfortable for browsing. So it's a better place to browse and to work, uh, which is important to us. Um, so we're just thrilled. Um, we, it, it absolutely feels like the right decision, and it makes me kind of wonder why we didn't do it sooner. Um, but here we are. Uh, we're happy to be here, and we're, again, just so thankful for the support. You're still a, a quite a young man, but you've packed a whole lot into that uh, time, <laughs> and you've done so many things, and a published poet, and now a published author, and it, you have a, a bookstore that is iconic in, in many ways. Uh, it, certainly, the journey's not anywhere near an end, but it's been a good one so far, hasn't it? Yeah, right. I'm thinking about slowing down just a little bit. I've done a lot over the last five years. Uh, focus on... on uh, being a dad for one thing uh, I have a three year old son so yeah we'll see what the future holds this podcast was made possible by our great sponsors like Easton Roofing the presenting sponsor of Kansas City Profiles at the Danny Kling Scale Reasonably Irreverent Podcast Easton Roofing where integrity matters we hope you enjoyed the latest Danny Kling Scale Reasonably Irreverent Podcast Come back soon for something fresh and new. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.